Hi, I'm John Mahias in New York. And I'm Zach Smith in Los Angeles. This is We Eat Art, a podcast where we talk to a real-life visual artist about... Can I get signals out to kids in the middle of nowhere? This episode, we're talking to Gary Panter, who lives in the studio in New York. What can I do that will solve their problem quickly and efficiently, and they will like it, and they will give me the money? Gary Panter is known for many things, but we're mostly going to talk about how he is a painter. But he's done a lot of alternative comics for things like Raw. He also worked as an illustrator for many years. He did Pee-Wee's Playhouse. He was super influential on the graphic look of the more interesting wing of children's media, accidentally maybe, I don't know. And he seems like an awfully nice guy. I've heard you many times describe yourself as a painter, but you do so many things, comics and... Yeah, everything, you know, I mean, and everything. everything starts in a sketchbook, but I'm always like trying to paint. Puppet shows, that's a kind of painting, you know. All those uh, mediums kind of blend together. They have different attributes, but kind of painting theory are just experimental investigations kind of behind it, I guess. Right. I'd never pick up a paintbrush. I do. A, I, I draw and I do printmaking and silk screening, but I don't do any, <laughs> anything with a but paintbrush. You should call it painting if you want, you know. I mean, oh, good. By now. <laughs> uh, I just trained as like, my paintings are pretty traditional in that they're like canvas stretched acrylic paint. You know, it's acrylic. It's not that traditional. Mm. I've been doing that since, you know, I was a teenager. But it's like you get away with it because the subtext of your paintings is all the non-painting things you did, right? Like It people. has more to do with printmaking and flat surfaces and print, yeah. But probably. it's also like people look at it, oh, that's Gary Panther, and he did comics for a long time, so there's like Raw and that, and there's the Pee-wee connection. And so it's like people, in their mind, the content of the paintings that they see now includes all these non-painting artworks that you've also done, right? Yeah, I think that's that's true. And, and sadly, I think Pee-wee comes, Pee-wee comes along with everything, you know, so... Well, I don't want to talk about Pee-wee all day, and you probably don't either, but I do want to say that I think, like, like Cartoon Network's whole aesthetic seems to sort of derive that lineage. Like, car- you know, it's a big deal now. A lot of that animation aesthetic that we have now kind of derives from that stuff that you were doing, at least partially back then. Yeah, I think it had a, it had influence. And, you know, it's the connected to underground comics, too. You know, yeah. once uh, a lot of people came out of comics into animation stuff. And then now they're, like, old enough to be parents and they're watching these things with their kids and they're like... I'm enjoying this because it's like a weird drug trip and you're enjoying this because you're a child and you like bright colors. Yeah. <laughs> and that's good. I mean, you know, right. my big peep was like horrible animation in the 70s, you know, which was just shit. You know, I mean, I'm thinking Translux Popeyes. Uh, in specific. Yeah. That's what got me heated about. But I, got, I have a hard time watching animation, but I mostly just watch 30s black and white cartoons, you know. I guess a lot of old cartoons listen to 30s music, you know? It's all, like, banjos and stuff. Yeah. I like to look at 30s animation. You mean because, like, it's it's so smooth and detailed? Like, what, like, what, like if you were going to describe why you like that for specific stuff so much, what would you say? Because it's real simple. It has a lot of repeating cycles, you know? Like, Farmer Alfalfa, that's the kind of stuff I'm thinking of, you know? Like, you know, uh, chickens that eat eat rain pellets and blast off into the sky and you know, make it rain and stuff. You know, silly stuff. Yeah. Holding cycles I really like, you know, where characters are kind of like doing that. That was the big gag from the old Mickey Mouse that I liked a lot. Do you like GIFs? 
Yeah, I think that's a real amazing form. Yeah, for sure. I do. You have a lot of dreams, you know, of like, oh, this magazine, the pictures are moving, and oh, maybe I'm dreaming. So it gives her a, a step closer to that. Like, yeah. like Facebook's like a magazine with your pals, with pictures. That it's like a zine curated by right. your friends. Yeah. Right. Totally. It's a total zine deal. God, we yeah. got to up our game then, I think. You know, <laughs> my column in particular oh, no. is, like, yeah, really just like, hey, buy some stuff. Uh, well, I'm getting rid of everything. I'm getting rid of a lot of my stuff because I'm going to move. So I've been in a house for 20 years piling stuff in it. You're in something heights, right? This is called a Ditmas Park. Oh, okay. And it's all these Victorian houses, you know. Sean McCarthy lived about right. 10 minutes away. I'm looking at somebody's room. We got a pile of clothes. Yeah, that's my bed. Nice. I, I okay. sleep on the floor in here. That's a that's an interesting <laughs> arrangement. Really? Just take close to the art. <laughs> you put the art on the floor, and you put yourself on the floor, and then like you can you both are touching a similar substrate. You that's, know. Yeah. Zach yeah. slept on a pad on the floor right next, like a foot away from his art for many years. I don't know if you still do. Oh yeah, I had like a futon mattress, <laughs> and yeah. then I had the the desk. What up and over the bottom half of the futon, like it was one of those ones with like a frame shell rather than legs. So you, yeah, like that's kind of what I got. If you sit up in the bed, you're at your desk, and it yeah. all went great until <laughs> you're ready to go all the time. Until a girl moved in. <laughs> well, it was it's a long story, and it was two girls in one bed, and oh, we had a lot yeah, of things problems. on the desk, and it was a whole yeah. It sounded worth it. So Zach in L.A. He's in L.A. Oh. You're the last bookstore, if you know that place. Well, but. I just started drinking, so I'm learning. It took me a while to learn just, the bars. You just started? What kept you from drinking all these years? I was raised super religious, you know, and there was a lot of alcoholism in my family, and so it was just kind of beat into me, and I became a stoner, and, you know, so I've been stoned for 40 years, but I decided that I might as well have a drink if I want. Okay. So I'm learning. Yeah. Right. You're figuring out what your drink is? Well, right now, you know, I mean, obviously we'd go to a party and order a gin and tonic or a white Russian, you know, at a bar or something. But, you know, I learned to make margaritas this summer and drink some whiskey. So, uh, okay. it's, you know, it's, it's, your new it's hobby. a drink. It's not like, you know, <laughs> I'm not really getting drunk. It just makes what. it a lot easier to read novels, I feel, because you'd be like, oh. oh, I know what you're talking about now. Oh, I, have to, I need to try reading and <laughs> drinking. Drink. I haven't done that yet. Yeah, you're like, a Singapore sling really isn't a Mai Tai. Those are different <laughs> kinds of marriages. Marriages right there. I still have not taken up drinking, so maybe when I'm yeah, wait till you're 64 like me, and then you can drink. No, it's like a real punk rock painter thing to not drink at all, Is it? or do it not. I don't know. Maybe it has something to do with like being like some sort of Jewishness in bet in you know. I don't know. There's just something about like I don't know. So you're moving? Yeah, I'm gonna move to Sunset Park or somewhere. Get closer to where I can get a taco. It's not terrible. It's hard in New York to not get to get great tacos, really, because I'm I like Tex-Mex and California uh, Mex. And the place that we're looking at is that where you live and work? Yes. Uh, so that bright light is the light over my painting table, and then I'm sitting on the couch, and then. Do you paint flat or upright? I paint flat because I use a lot of like really wet paint to make those like pools. Me too. Yeah. So I'm like, see people with an easel, and I'm like, that's bullshit. No one does that. Yeah, I mean, if you're an oil painter, it can be sticky enough to stay up there, but I'm using acrylic, and it would just run off. Yeah. The surface that I was really interested in was um, a surface that was like the printed media that I was really inspired by. I was interested in a surface that was like comics and like printed things, and so I didn't want that sticky oil look. 
I don't know if you had the same ideas about how you want the surfaces of your paintings to look, but that was my... Yeah, I work in acrylic, so, you know, it will turn to plastic pretty quick. So I would always paint kind of too thin. I painted a little bit thicker recently, but it's still like, I don't know, three to eight coats of acrylic that are cream consistency, and they have white in them, so they're, and it's not titanium, so it's not shiny. I don't like shiny so much. That's kind of what you're saying. It's I, I imitate paper a little bit, and I'm kind of always imitating the authority of, of print a little bit. I, I wanted to ask when you got to the point that you could be a, a gallery artist. Like, were you that from the beginning and then the other stuff was a side thing? Or did that stuff come first and then at a certain point you built up enough steam that you could just show a painting in a gallery and people would buy it? Or how did that work? Well, I've been showing in galleries since I was really young. So I studied painting. I wanted to be a painter. But then I got excited about comics from hippie comics. And then I had to make money somehow, so I did illustration. And so it's easy to get famous as an illustrator and a cartoonist. So that kind of fucked up painting a little bit. Right. But I just kept painting all that time. And so I think it's probably still screwed up my painting career a little bit, even though a lot of people, you know, like Keith Haring would like to have done a Pee Wee's Playhouse. That's what he would have, you know, he had Pee Wee toys laying around all of his, his place, you know. Right. It would have been good for him after being a painter to do it. But maybe coming... From the other end, it's like, oh, you're just, you know, I saw your stuff in, you know. In Raw or whatever. Even, not even Raw, even like Entertainment Weekly. Right. Oh, you were writing about this thing I hated, you know, or drawing about it. But I'm not heavily collected. I think mm. Fredericks and Freiser, they're great people. I love them. I think they're working really hard to sell my work, but I'm not heavily collected yet at all. I'm not like dying, worrying about the rent every second like I did for the last 30 years, because now it's 40 years on, you know. So I'm scooting along. Creatively, it's great. Creatively, things are just getting better and better every year. I'm faster. I'm better. I've not fallen apart yet. So we'll see. A lot of stuff's just timing, right? That's true. There's also like, it's a moment for a lot of people, like Peter Saul and other people who are kind of recognized as like having been really influential. They kind of get some props now for having done that in a way that they kind of have to acknowledge the importance of that work at a certain point. Yeah, but he was like 70 or something yeah. before he really started selling. And, and Carl Worsom, I mean, he's one of the worthiest artists there is. And he's still, I mean, he was big in the 70s, but you just haven't seen him much since till recently. Yeah, I, I was like Robert Williams, his whole like famousness as a painter and who like runs his magazine came long after he was making a lot of that work because it just took so long for people to go, okay, yeah, you're in. Art is big enough to encompass what you do. Um, when I was a kid, I always thought you had to be an old man to be a painter because I always liked Picasso. It's like, oh, he's old. I see. It might take a long time. <laughs> But I hope I didn't write a script of waiting forever. Yeah, I, I think that all bets are off right now. What was the, the first art stuff that you were into? Well, my dad, he just went to the old folks' home, and he painted right up to the second he went into. So he's been making art since I was a baby, and so that's how I got into art. I got into modern art when I was about 10 and kind of freaked him out ever since, you know, because he just likes cowboys and Indians. But yes, I, I wanted to be a modern artist since I was a kid. <laughs> Where Were you out west? Where were you guys at? I was in a little town called Sulphur Springs, Texas, uh, okay. 80 miles outside of Dallas. So in high school, I was painting these big paintings, you know, six by eight paintings of my 
garage and stuff. I went to art school and did that, ET, East Texas State University, which was in the middle of nowhere. It had a great art department, had all these fantastic teachers, and they were bored, and they would hang out with us. So it was, it was just lucky that I was like grew up 16 miles away from this art school in the middle of nowhere. So when you say you got into modern art, who were your modern artists that made you stick out? Well, first you see, I mean, typically you're going to see like Picasso and Salvador Dali, but we had a subscription in Newsweek. And so I saw Jasper Johns and Rauschenberg and stuff like that pretty early on, Klein and de Kooning. And just, you know, I became an art nerd and went to the little local library and kept my eyes on the magazine rack at the drugstore. And you start like gleaning stuff back in those days. You just go to libraries and stuff. Do you feel like what you kind of became known for came out of that stuff you were doing in art school? Or did it, was there a break where you're like, I'm not doing this anymore, I'm doing that? Or is this sort of a growth no, it was all growth. I was raised in the Church of Christ. I could have been a, I was kind of like a missionary to Northern Ireland in 1969. My family's still going to that church, and that's just burned into me. And so my whole life has been trying to like get out of that brain trap and open up. And modern art was a real good way to do that, like peer investigation and self-investigation. And art school was good. I had teachers that just, you know, put great stuff in my hands and were my friends. And so it's all been fantastic, really, just trying to get away from Jesus, you know. (laughs) Escape from Jesus. Usually when kids are 11 and 12, they just really want to draw realistically. And to them, that's the highest level. I teach kids and they all just like, well, can you draw realistic? And that's that's all it is. How did you escape that? I was drawing realistic from really young. So when I got to first grade, I was making real stunted adult drawings, but I don't remember remember making kids' drawings very much, and I always liked the other kids' drawings, so that, in a way, I admired the primitiveness of my friends' drawings mm. right. and wished I could do that, even though my drawings were ugly, you know, the people were at bad proportions. They were like junior high school drawings or something. I remember when I was young that, like, being conscious that there were these certain kids who had a style that was super not realistic, but it was super stylish. Like they'd be 10, 11 years old and they'd draw like all their superheroes with these big round muscles that were like in a specific way. (laughs) And I felt like I was making it up as I went along every drawing. You know, like it was hard and I was like, I don't know how to do this. Every time I was drawing a face, I was drawing it for the first time. Whereas these kids were like, they could draw 30 faces. Even at the time, I felt like they had some kind of innate talent and I and I didn't. They might have had some kind of coordination thing or some perception. I think I've got perceptual problems in a way, you know, so I think I'm kind of compensating for my whatever it is. But yeah, I think there are people that are just good at that, but it doesn't mean that they necessarily do interesting stuff. And that was the weird thing is like those yeah. people didn't grow up to be artists. They had a way ready for them to draw people yeah. and draw things. Like if you said draw that lamp, they would do it. And it would be super stylized in a specific way. And that was impressive in a certain way. They could just do it. Whereas I felt like every time I draw a lamp, even now I'm like, I gotta find out what a lamp looks like all over again. Well, that's good because then you're there for it. You're not just like, here's my lamp. Being, there's my lamp, you know? Yeah. You're like having to look at the lamp. It's good. There's two or three kids in every class. Like when we draw the trees, everyone's going to make a circle and a stick, no matter what the tree looks like. But there's always two kids that's looking at the tree, looking down at their paper, and like, oh, there's the artist. That and they're just getting in trouble because they're drawing in other textbooks. But I do think there's something kind of cool about the visual language of the stick and the sphere, or at least artists who can later in life like access that. I think probably like people who end up making daily comics might have been those kids gone right. <laughs> you know, like drawing Garfield, he looks like Garfield every time. Yeah. 
Jim Davis drawing Garfield is not the same skill set in a lot of senses as what we do, but it is a separate and it's a crazy discipline. He always looks like Garfield every, yeah. you know? It, it seems horrible. Like it's a weird plastic thing in your mind. I don't know. He's created a hieroglyph. Well, Matt Groening was like that and that he hung out with a lot of talented drawers and he knew he was not the best drawer, so he became a writer and he made funny pictures. But he also designs with clarity, you know? So Matt Groening's stuff communicates really quickly and efficiently, whereas what my stuff, someone might think it's more artistic somehow, but it's going to be slower and spazzier and you know, more, you know, not communicate as well. I actually wanted to ask about that specifically. Your work, like a lot of people who like have a comic background or a comic something in their history, has lots of little narrative details. There'll be like a weird carrot-shaped car with like the nose chopped. I don't know, I'm making, maybe I'm making right. something yeah. up. We're coming out of Volcano. But it's like, to what degree do you feel like your paintings need to be or should be read or you read them or invest a, a story in them? And to what degree is it those are shapes you're playing with? In painting, it's more about the shapes, though since I'm using imagery, it's going to generate stories no matter what. And usually if I'm trying to find a, a subject, which I'm making all my stuff's from movie posters, you know, I'm looking through thousands of lobby cards to find certain shapes and these kind of pregnant situations where their story is not so clear, but it's kind of an awkward moment almost, mm. or that's a little bit funny, like a couple with guns or something, or a bunch of people in a life raft. And so I know that's going to be there, but I guess I'm trying to point harder at everything else, the effect the light, the colors, compositions, the shape compositions. In comics, I do all that. I'm totally into comics. I'm trying to get you into my story, even if it's experimental story. I might be trying to frustrate you or giving you a reading list secretly or just trying to tell a conventional story. And so in painting, I've tried to back off that a little bit. In your work, you have lots of subject matter. Is it a story or is it a formal? It's almost never a story. I mean, it is just shapes in a certain way. It's like what you said. It's like a byproduct. It's kind of always going to happen. Right. People are going to read it, bringing what they bring to it. And you're using a vocabulary that takes them to a certain area of culture or certain areas. I'm probably taking people to Britpop. <laughs> I didn't even think of that. I was going to say, just John, that your stuff is narrative. Even just like your drawings, they always seem to be about something for you, like you want to get a more expressive in a specific way. Yeah, I was telling Gary earlier that I just, I love telling stories, so all my stuff serves a story, so that's still what I'm into doing. Well, story's essential, but to me, a lot of painting was about going into some big white space or some museum and getting arrested for a second by a painting, just like, oh, fuck, and just, that's enough. The painting's done its job if it, like, stops you for 30 seconds and yeah. affects your mood or your context or your sense of where you are or something, and, and making it's a thing. Francis Bacon said he... You know, they asked him about story. He's like, I like the starkness of the image. Yeah, I've tried to paint my comics big, and I found it extremely painful and horrible, you know, so I don't do that. I would do it, you know, if someone paid me to do it, but it's not the thing that makes me happy. I don't want to see Jimbo big, really. I know what you mean. I've seen so many people who are into comics and paintings try to just do it. What for you are the reasons that it fails? or it doesn't work for Some you. Some people as can much. pull it off. I think Trenton Doyle Hancock pulls it off. I think his work is narrative and you're kind of entering into a text to read. And I think you are entering kind of a narrative in my work, but it's just going to be the title written on the side of the painting and this real simple thing. I'm, I, maybe I'm just dealing with a much more simple narrative and painting. But 
I think it could fail in a lot of ways. The painting could fail in a bunch of ways. You know, it's really a fraud. I just mean specifically if you like take a comic thing and you just make it big and it's a painting now. Well, Part of the reason it fails is like you're not making it up as you go along. Can people kind of feel it? It's like when you say a comedy routine joke without the routine, you know, just say the joke. Well, in some ways yeah. I'm kind of doing that and I'm choosing stuff from the culture and I'm restating it. So I'm finding something I think would be worth for me to restate somehow. And I think it's up to the individual. I mean, so everyone can do a different thing. But what makes one of your paintings fail in your mind? Well, most of them aren't. I mean, I can stand most of them, you know, unless I throw them away. Uh, if they get too complicated, if they get overworked, if one area of the painting, the surface gets too much and the rest of the painting's a different surface, I might have to feel like I have to adapt the rest of the surface or give it up. Or if it just got constipated. Is that thing about the surface like partially just to keep it like, is it a thing that in reproduction you wouldn't be able to tell, but in real life it just doesn't look right because this one has lots more paint on one side than the other? Or is it something that affects the overall look, even if you're not in front of it? It's probably mostly about being in person with the thing. It's funny, in reproduction, things will do all kinds of, I mean, a lot of paintings will look a lot better in reproduction, and a lot of drawings will look a lot better, and have a kind of authority that comes along with media. It's just persuasive, you know. But back to, like, Lichtenstein, at the moment he emerged, I think his paintings were fine and great, not all of them. A lot of cartoonists really hate him. Spiegelman really hates him to death, and uh, I like that stuff. I like these big brushstroke paintings. Those are more discovered in a way. Those are more personal in a way. Yeah. I can see that. When you're working as an illustrator, you don't have to worry about the surface at all, and you can just like glue Zipatone on there, or you can, you know, and you can have like a big part that's just like charcoal, but as long as it blends when you reproduce it, it's fine. And then when right. you work as a painter, people are actually gonna look at this, and so there are certain tricks you can't do at all, um, and so you've gotta invent a way to make it a new experience. So I do think it's important the person standing in front of the painting, you know, I love paintings and reproduction. You know, mostly I've seen them in books, but uh, as an ambition, I think having someone stand in front of it is kind of a thing. So you went from Texas and you went to art school and then you were looking at modern art and then you moved to the city at some point, New York, LA, and you started working as an illustrator. Right. So how did all that go? I guess I would add, in high school I worked in a funeral home, and the church was just burned on me. When I got out of art school, it was in 74, I fell in love with a girl in school, we got married for a minute, lived in Dallas. In 76, I got in the truck and drove to L.A. and uh, arrived not really knowing anybody. I knew a friend of a friend, and so I just drug my portfolio around because I didn't have any money. And so I was really going to the few magazines, the record companies, which there were a lot, you know, struggled to survive. And then punk rock happened, and I saw Slash magazine and liked those guys, and they published me. And Raw noticed at the end of the 70s, and the French guys noticed. My Japanese friends noticed me around you know, 1980. And uh, so my friend Mr. Ishii came from Japan and interviewed me for a Japanese magazine and became my agent and brought me to Japan a lot of times. And then, you know, I went to a lot of punk rock shows in L.A. I couldn't really get into a gallery in L.A. somehow. I was in a lot of alternative spaces. I was in galleries, but they weren't like big, hot galleries. You know, they were fringe galleries, and they were hot culturally. I assume that at no point, like until at least the mid-80s, was Raw 
and also Slash ever really a money-making venture? Or were those things like, <laughs> you were like making money doing commercial jobs and then it was cool to be in Slash and Raw because it showed your work to other creative people. I mean, is that pretty much how it felt at the time? Yeah, I just had to do something. You know, before I did that, in Dallas, I couldn't get any, any commercial artwork. So I worked as a janitor and I worked at a color separation place, you know. But at L.A., I could survive an illustration, which I was better suited to do when I did that. But I've never made a lot of money. I mean, right. I, when I worked on Pee Wee, I made up some money. And I, last year, I sold a lot of artwork, so that was great. But it's always, like, been very fraught. Right, but you still paid the rent, so I assume, I that, you know, like, yeah. at the time you were. So, I, I mean, even though Slash and Raw were not paying the rent, they were good places to meet people or, you know, have people that be That was seen. essential. That was yeah. my, that was essential, yeah. At what point did your dad stop worrying about you being an artist? He's still praying for Well, he's oh. father, you know? I mean, you know, it's never ended. It's very contentious my whole life. You know, I love the guy. I worship the guy. But, you know, like a lot of fathers and sons, it's fraught. And with this religious stuff, with the politics that are associated with it now, it's just a nightmare. I love Texas. I love my friends in Texas. But, you know, they're all watching Fox News, you know, and buying more oh. guns and stuff. You know, They can have guns. I don't care. It's kind of amazing how it, the beginning opposition that's like made your art happen is still just right there. You know, like it's still it has there. It. The '60s freaked them out. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes the power of spite. <laughs> well, you know, if it takes irritation to make this kind of stuff, to have a life that has curiosity to it, it's all worth it. I don't care. Having the church. You know, I'm, I'm sure it's great for some people, but it makes a lot of people I know kind of smug, you know? Mm. God really likes me. I've got it all figured out. Here, let me sell you a little. Yeah, it's like grad school. <laughs> you know. When you're working on Raw, how did you guys communicate with each other? Was it mostly like people that you met like were in L.A. and you'd hang out? Or is it like you'd write somebody a letter? You'd be like, oh, I saw your thing. Or there, people would have a party and you'd meet somebody like twice a year. Or like, how did that scene work? It was all of the above. I mean, working for Wet Magazine first and Slash Magazine, I met other artists through that. There were parties. I did write Matt Groening a fan letter. He walked up to me at a party and handed me some stuff. But the main event, I think, back then was Bruno Richard. You know Bruno in Paris? Crazy pornographer, drawer. Yeah. He worked with Pascal Dury as El Santa Sortie. It's all sex. And uh, they're great. And it's super prolific people. Pascal died. But Bruno, in 78 or 79, he went all over the world and looked up every oddball artist he could find. All the underground cartoonists, the Harry Who, he went to Japan, he went to everywhere, and he published a book called Graphic Production with everyone's addresses in it, and then people could start to write each other. Oh, that's so cool. And he visited me, he went to San Francisco, he visited Eskley Wilson and all those guys, and that book's out there, Graphic Production, you know, with a lot of Mark Beyer. Later he became agoraphobic, you know, but didn't want to leave the house, because of his bad behavior, perhaps. Hmm. Was it feel like you guys felt like you had things in common, like a lot or was it more like you would meet people through their comics and then it turned out to be a very diverse group a lot of times i'll write an artist and be like hey i like your stuff and they write me back and it's like we're twins separated at birth and then other times i do that and they're completely different cultural contexts in every way we almost can't talk to each other but we like each other's work it is like that but i got lucky and met people like matt Groening. you know yeah. immediately we were both frank zappa captain beefheart weirdo record fans and i had friends from college uh jay cotton and rick heitzman that moved to la if you're looking you know the right people will come out of the woodwork and the wrong people come out of the woodwork 
you can try to get rid of the wrong people. How did you, in your own mind, think about your graphic style, like comic-influenced style, in relationship to the modern art you were looking at? Like, would you feel like this is just kind of de Kooning, but more? Or is it, what was the context for that for you? Well, I was an art nerd, and you can see my influences, really, but there's so many of them. But say, superficially, I think you can see Picasso, Dubuffet, the Harry Who, the British pop artist, early Hockney, Jack Kirby from comics, all this stuff that I mingle together. And somehow it looks like I did it. I don't understand that part of it, but I understand the enthusiasms. Also, I was interested in old kind of timey stuff like John Tenniel and the old cross-hatching Thomas Nast and stuff. Yeah, you can definitely see that in Jimbo. Yeah, brought a hatching. And Underground Comics was really of a Rick Griffin I had followed since he was a surfer. I was just isolated, so I was looking at magazines and trying to stay happy. You know, I used to go to the library and just Xerox everything that I liked. That was smart. And just make it into a, my own book. That's a good idea. A lot of it was your stuff, <laughs> as it Thank turns you. out. But yeah, that was before the internet. Then you were operating from fragments. Yeah, exactly. Then you then you could imagine these worlds that this thing suggested. Oh, I can't really get my hold of Zap Comics, but I know what the cover looks like. I wonder if this is in there, and that would help you invent new work that was imaginary work. Really. In terms of your like written stuff, like the stuff that was actually comics, do you feel like there's an overarching ideas or themes that came out of those that were like specific to that work? Like, if you didn't have any of your just purely visual stuff, and you just thought of yourself as a writer. Right. You have ideas about what you were writing about? Yeah, and I've become more of a writer in the last few years with the encouragement of a lot of writer friends, you know. And uh, I guess the same the stuff with, you know, my visual influences would be the writing influences and the stuff I read, like uh, Anthony Burgess and, you know, William Burroughs and Donald Bartleby and all of that stuff is an influence. So anybody who's standing with a B, like last name begins with a B. Yeah, or... right, everyone with a B. J.G. Right. Ballard. Ballard, Burgess, yeah, all of those Roland guys. Roland you know, Philip K. Bick. Yeah, but Robert Coover, all those metafiction guys, I really love that stuff. And the list makers, James Joyce and Rabelais. I read a bunch of stuff in the last few years. I mean, it's many years now, I guess. When I was doing Purgatory, I had to read all of this, you know, Elizabethan poetry and stuff, you know. That was kind of a self-educated kind of a deal. But I do think of myself as more of a writer now. And I'm writing a fake hippie newspaper now on this hippie project I'm working on. So I'm trying to write all of the voices of this whole community that's writing an underground newspaper. So it's about a bunch of hippies writing a newspaper. Yeah, but I'm embodying them. I'm becoming them to have their contributions to the newspaper. Is your work more influenced by myth or science fiction? Wow. Uh, hmm. Well, they're really bound up together. Hmm. So, I mean, science fiction is definitely mythic and definitely metaphorical, and myth is metaphorical. I would say Jung was really important, like symbols that was really important. Uh, Marshall McLuhan and Buckminster Fuller, all those 60s things. You know, a lot of things that were hot in the 60s, they're still hot with me. I feel like a lot of what you do is in writing is, I mean, I guess almost visually you kind of do similar things. But just to start with in writing, it's like you'll take a voice, like a cliché of voice or way of talking that we're familiar with. Right. And you'll kind of use that voice until it sounds super silly or sounds <laughs> you're like mocking a, a familiar way of a heroic, like a mock heroic voice or like right. a mock serious voice. 
It's a sort of satirical thing, but it's almost not satirizing anything specific. It's almost just satirizing that people even try to say things. <laughs> I'm pretty sincere, you know, but I am a, a mimic. It's not necessarily a nice thing to be. Mm. But uh, the manifesto stuff, that was totally, you know, mimicking Marinetti and, you know, other manifestos. The Ross Talks manifesto, I don't know if you ever saw it, was this thing encouraging artists to invade media that I wrote in 79. A lot of people noticed it. It was weird. It still floats around. Yeah, I love it. Would it be different now? It's a different world now. <laughs> I guess it would be against people looking at their hands everywhere, you know? That drives me crazy, people looking at their iPhones. It would be like a back-to-pencil sharpener manifesto now. But that's just a Luddite, you know? So that's my insecurity also. I think an investment in not necessarily Luddite stuff but like know every part of the process that you're doing so that new things can come out of it is something that still applies even in the internet era. Getting into the nitty gritty of how to make a thing different than another thing. Well, it, I teach at SVA and really we insist that they not use computers for a few years. You know, they have to use dip nibs and brushes and yield bullshit. And I think that's Kind of what you're saying. If you're understanding the groundwork and understanding creativity broadly, then you can apply it all over the place in new technology or no technology. How do the students feel about this? I think they're really excited to be in art school and, and drawing comics. You know, they're paying a lot of money to study uh. comics, and it's a lot of work. It's not easy because you have all these super serious cartoonist teachers like loading on the work. Right. Art school is almost always like, let's do something that no artist does anymore. It always involves a sort of like Luddite thing that you're not sure means anything, but everyone does right. it. Like it's always involved that. Drawing from plaster. The first year is always in most schools involves like some, and nobody knows if it works or does anything, but it's like, this is what we know. So we'll try and see. And I think learning to do something with a discipline is always a, like any kind of discipline is almost useful. Yeah, absolutely. Anything. And that's, again, I, I'll go into teacher mode. I'll try not to do that. You know, I try to get across to them that they're not really studying cartooning. They're studying something much broader than that. Does it work? Yeah, I think for some people it does. I think a lot of some students like me and some don't get it. Some, <laughs> you know, some take it me as a, again, as a senior. I don't know. I might be just known as a softy because I don't really like making students do stuff over. I just want them to try it and move on to the next thing. Mm. Because usually it takes a few years to absorb this stuff anyway. If you were to teach art to kindergartners, what would you do? Well, I think I'd work on, you know, getting non-toxic materials that they could do a lot of stuff with. And I would, but it would be projects. It'd be like paper mache, animals, tempera paint. I don't know. I think you just have to watch them go almost, keep them from hurting each other. Yeah, they'll go. You know what? You know what's funny about kindergartners painting is I they'll just keep painting until it's just all brown mud, so I, I take yeah. it away at a certain point. That's a good idea, yeah. I, I wish somebody would do that for me. Yeah, <laughs> well, if that's why I'm not painting in oil, I think I would just have a big brown painting. Yeah, I did that when I was painting as a kid, and I wish those hippies had stopped me. I think I would have made some better paintings, like... <laughs> Everyone was just a mush because I just didn't stop. It was terrifying. I, I always like again, I liked what the other kids did, and my stuff just looked terrible to me. A lot of people think artists are sitting around going like, I'm fantastic, you know. You might think that for a minute, but the rest of the time you're just thinking like, oh my God, you know, like I'm insane. You know? <laughs> I don't know about any about every artist, but I feel like when I look at your paintings, there's definitely a thing of like, this is hard. 
Like the line expresses that drawing anything is hard. Like you never draw somebody the same way twice. Yeah. There's an anxiety about even producing the, <laughs> that I find very relatable in it's a way true. that like, you know, we were saying like the difference between you and Matt Groening, you know, like Matt Groening. Yeah. I like the Simpsons and all that, but, and I love life in hell, but like he can draw that same damn rabbit every time. And I'm like, Whoa, you know? Yeah. Whereas yours is like, how do you draw a rabbit? And it's the same thing that you were talking about with the lamp. Because when I write my cartoons, I get very emotional. When stuff happens to my characters, it's just, it appears to me like a movie, and it's a piece of the puzzle that goes bang, and it's full of emotion, you know, of the interaction between the characters, what's risked, whatever the situation is. And I think I really want to be there for that. And so I think if I just drew Jimbo, which he looks somewhat, he's always three-quarter, you don't see him face on very much. But the light's fallen on his face in different ways and stuff, usually. That's interesting, because I think they probably feel kind of detached. Like, because the language is so funny. Like, the idea that you're really attached to these characters and scared for them would not have occurred to me. I don't know about John. How do you think? Well, how do you feel about that? Like, do you look at them and go, oh, shit, we're worried about Jimbo? There's two different ways I look at them. Sometimes when I first get something new by you, I don't even read it first. I just look at it for a really long time. And then I come back to it, and then I start to read it, and it's just—it's a whole different thing when you're when you're reading it. Well, I've done a lot of things that are not forgiving. They're hard to read, and they take yeah. you to unreadable places. Yeah. But when I do a conventional story, and more and more I do that because I've already done lots of experimentation. Yeah, even in Del Tokyo, I felt it sometimes. Except I was obscuring what I, what the story was most of the time. You know, I knew what the story was, but I was looking someplace else while that was going on. Yeah, my, my daughter, who's nine, was looking at Del Tokyo, and she was just like, Dad, what is this? <laughs> like, what is it supposed to be? It's a conundrum. <laughs> it's a mess. <laughs> so yeah, that's a legitimate question. But it's really, it's experimental art, which is not the same as The Simpsons. The Simpsons, or whatever, communicates with people. It's obviously more about emotions. What is experimental? Like, what does that word mean to you? Because I, I always think, like, when we say experimental as artists, we're saying something a lot easier than what scientists are saying. Yeah. But then I think, but I don't want to be. I want to be doing what <laughs> scientists do when I do something experimental. It's like, this is an experiment. It might work. We might learn something. Well, I think you can definitely learn something from an art experiment. It's a lot less rigorous, probably, for sure, except you've, like, spent your whole life getting up to that moment of trying this thing. But often it is just kind of like, what if I push these shapes, you know? What if I make the nose bigger or some stupid thing, you know? It could be as simple as that. Or, you know, what if I use three eyes or a hundred eyes? Or, you know, Picasso did so much of it. The shattering space and looking at things in different stylizations and so on. Okay, so we don't know what experimental is. I think that's well, I would, fair to okay. say. As opposed to drabble. Right. Travel, you know what's going to happen. You're in a world, there it is, and you're confronted with it. It's pretty limited. But, I mean, it's not the same as saying mediocre, because The Simpsons, again, is not experimental in the way it's drawn. There's a difference, right? Well, I think travel could be fine, you know. It's just trying to do something else. When I do more conventional stuff, it's probably more like drip. Mm. Because it has people with their feet on the ground talking to each other, and you can understand what they're saying. When you do your comics, are you conscious of being like, in this panel, I need to get this idea across, and so I better draw it more normal using, like, less... I better fuck around less and make sure I know that I'm drawing this shoe properly. And then in this panel, 
I kind of don't need to get across an idea. I'm just going to draw what I'm going to draw. Do you, are you conscious of like letting go of the reins and like dropping them? I probably don't let go of the reins, but I turn my strategy another way. You know, I drew comics that are more relaxed than other comics because most of the comics I'm drawing now, I'm having to take a month a page, you know, or three weeks for a page to just, you know, pencil it till it's black, erase it 50 times, and then try really hard to ink it neatly. And without any whiteout, that's my other thing, is trying not to use, uh, trying to accept the mistakes and fuck-ups. Do you pencil first? Oh, yeah. <laughs> do you pay attention to what you've penciled, or do you ignore it? Or? I have to, you have to reinvent it when you put the line down at the last moment. You have to draw it again better than the last time you drew it. Mm. But it takes me forever just to get the shapes in the right place, you know? So I'm like, you look at uh, Charles Burns' pencils. It's like a ball of fur, but he's doing it all on tracing paper and refining it on tracing paper, then it goes pristine to the page. I just start on the paper, and so my work looks kind of dirty. Can't really get all that gray off. Right, right, right. But a scanner can get rid of it. When you do things that aren't paintings, like other projects, other media, is that opportunistic? Like, oh, you, you can do this, someone wants to publish this kind of thing or that kind of thing, and so you do it? Or is it more just the ideas take on a life of your own in the sketchbook and you're like, I need to find a way, an outlet for this non-painting project that I'm doing? It's the latter. Unless it's commercial art. If it's commercial art, I'm just trying to please people. I'm trying to figure out what can I do that will solve their problem quickly and efficiently and they will like it and they will give me the money. Hmm. But everything else in my life is very personal and fraught and stupid. Well, this hippie project for, I don't know, 15 years I've been working on this idea of doing tiny, some small things that would kickstart the 60s again. You know, a magic thing. And it's kind of a joke, but I keep persisting and now I'm working on a head shop. And I don't know how long it'll take me to build the head shop, but it's an installation idea. So I'm making candles and necklaces and bracelets and shirts and fabrics and stuff, you know. And it's totally, could never make a cent or, you know, some millionaire could want to buy the whole thing. Who knows, you know, but it's a total compulsion. I'm, I'm picturing this in my head. <laughs> my next book is called Hippie Trip, and it's like 250 pages of my notes about the hippie head shop. It kind of reminds me of Keinholz's Barney's Beanery. I love Keinholz. Yeah, my teacher was crazy about Barney's Beanery. He was always raving about this space in it, that it was so shallow and had such a presence. There's a lot of interesting art out there. There's a lot of shit, like comics. There's just 90% awful, Yeah. and so is painting, 90% awful. But the 10% is transcendent and helpful to the individual. I think everyone gets to decide. If people say to me, like, what's his name? The guy that paints everything upside down, Baslets, you know? Yeah, he did a little bit of that, yeah. I just don't like that. I just don't like his art. I don't know why. It doesn't speak to me. If other people want to like it, great. Good for them. But I can, like, make my own list, you know, of good stuff and shit. Do you have a a divider between not to my taste and actually bad? Like, it's bad that this got made. (laughs) Hmm, that's interesting. I guess it would have to be evil, maybe. I don't know. Well, I would say intent, it plays a part. Say, like, Damien Hirst. I think it's kind of bad. But I think it has to do with his Oh, added- shit. Shots fired. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, He's I a mean, living artist. You know, I mean, you know, I'll never probably be in a bar with him. He's not going to throw a punch at me or care. He, he also, like, riffs on one of my favorite obscure artists, which is uh, Thomas Downing, the dot painter from the 60s. And also, like, what's his name? The German guy that paints the giant lead things. 
giant lead things with the, with the straw on them. You know, they're giant. They're mournful things. You know, they're vast, and he makes millions of them. Oh, and some kefir. Right, kefir. Yeah, I guess they're lead. Yeah, I was thinking of like a giant bullet or something. But yeah, and some kefir you don't like. <laughs> you're, the, you're the first person like, who's not shy to talk about who you, who you don't like. Everyone no, else is like, so nice. No one cares. <laughs> no one cares that I think. These guys, it's not going to hurt their feelings, you know, because you have to be tough. There's a lot of people hate my art. There's people, I have whole chats online that I'm a phony, complete phony, can't draw a fucking thing, you know. Huh. But I can't really worry about that. It, no, I mean, I think at a certain point you get that. But I am interested in, like, how do you get mad at Gary Panter? Can you give us a window into, like, <laughs> oh, what are yeah. the things that people decided they hate about you? Well, like, can't, okay, can't I can There's obviously people who are like, can't draw because they're expecting traditional draftsmanship. Right. Sure. But that's easy. What else you got? Not as good as the 19th century, you know. Just can't compete with the 19th century. Frustrates the reader. Maybe they're making, maybe I'm making fun of them or something. So you're basically just being insulted for having, like, a style that's, like, for being a raw comics artist. Kind of raw in general. For, like, an ugly stuff. I always yeah. liked bathroom graffiti. There was a kid in my school, grade school. He was hydrocephalic. He drew, like, with uh, rulers and protractors and wrote in geometric style. I thought he was mind-blowing. I always like crappy-looking stuff because I'm kind of spazzy. I have uh, control problems and perceptual problems. Is there a difference between ugly and ugly like grotesque like right. it's it's crappy and punk rock and fucked up and right. ugly that's ugly i would have to say probably my ugliness is very highly somehow styled it's under control or say like donald bachelor his stuff is even more under control it's kind of ugly and and kid stuff but it's all everything's nailed down completely so, yeah, I, I think it's, again, it's up to the individual. I'm not, can't, like, think there's, like, an ultimate. But, say, Dubuffet. People can, like, look at Dubuffet and just think, this is the ugliest stuff possible. I've had a few arguments about Dubuffet. But it's, you know, if you're grok it, you know, <laughs> then you grok it. I feel like I have a, a really weird relationship to that because I like things that, like, I just think of everything I like as beautiful. Yeah. Right. No matter how fucked up it is. But right. that will include, like, the ecstasy of St. Teresa and, like, the way someone's knee got skinned, you know? Yeah. So I don't use the word ugly to describe that. Your work embraces ugly in a different way. Like, you'll draw something in such a way that the person who's imagining what that thing would be like if it was in the real world goes, oh, that's supposed to be an ugly person. Yeah. And I'm wondering if there's... I'm trying to, like, get a little big picture about, like, Okay, so you're talked in the early thing about like trying to get away from religion for a long time. Like it's in your head. It's a big deal yeah. your whole life. And then Basilitz and, and, and Kiefer as being also, they were part of a bohemian kind of expressionism in their country, in their tradition. That was about ugliness. That was about a certain kind of heavy thing but it somehow is completely different than the american one and i think maybe it's like your kind of expressionism was always there's always a humorousness because somehow that humorousness is anti-religious in some way maybe i mean i think there always there often is humor in my work there's a lot of sadness in my work too i guess a kefir to me back to kefir for a second too many big paintings, you know? Just do some small paintings, you know? Does everything have to... And, and I know he does. I'm sure he does a million small paintings I don't see. I love the Mexican muralist, you know, when I was high school, I wanted to paint big paintings. I went to art school, I painted big paintings. And I know how to paint gigantic paintings. 
but I became more interested in painting paintings that are maybe like, you know, five by six feet, you know, or two by three feet or something. It's just me. It's just what I'm into. But some things just seem like, oh, you know, it's there because it's a fucking monster. The paint alone must have cost, you know, $100,000 just for the paint. The lumber alone. It's, I don't really want to think about I, I don't have anything against, you know, um, monumentality. But when it's just a, like, you need to get it to get in the club. Oh, we all need a diamond ring to be in the club, you know. Mm. Oh, we need a hot rod or we can't really be L.A. artist or something, you know. Oh, I can't afford a hot rod. I can't be an L.A. artist. You know? <laughs> yeah, I'm really I'm pissed off I haven't got my hot rod yet. Um, yeah, you need a hot rod, definitely. Yeah. I had a low rider and it was, like, not quite yeah, the same. Get a dune buggy, man. <laughs> but I, I'm interested in this, like, there's a certain ponderous like when it's bad ponderous but a certain like monumentality and heaviness and darkness to that work and it's like trying to announce how heavy and big and gigantic right. it is I'm heavy. and i think <laughs> your work is all is is also like in opposition to something but it's more about like undercutting things like well and i think i would say some friends have told me that i undercut myself by doing that you know that i don't act important enough <laughs> or don't act dignified enough or snobby enough or whatever you know but is dignifiedness an enemy in your work not really i think i think humor is essential i think dignity is essential and humor is essential and it's also dignity is not totally essential because it can make you so uptight you can't function like so i'm in a band one of the joys of my life is being and making music with people and to get up in front of people and try to remember your chords and lyrics and you know deliver the notes. It's scary and hard, you know. Is it harder than making art? Well, it's a different thing. It's different. Yeah. It's more ecstatic, too. Once you get right. going, you go fly away with people, you know, so uh, it's a mixed bag. Right. I've been in bands and I've always talked about how it's more fun and easier, but also I'm a terrible musician. Me too. So. <laughs> Zach's been in bands. Yeah, I mean, I always think what interest is weird to me is that, like, the things you can say in music and the things you can say in art are separate sets like you can't make an exact parallel to a music because art's just slower basically in almost every you know like it's huh, access yeah. to a person and so like people trying to like make music art and make a perfect equivalent i feel like it's like those guys who like make the jazz painting and it's like like a splattery painting of like a saxophone and it just doesn't yeah it's not the same when you look at like your your stuff in like raw or like slash especially it, the music is a form and it can say certain things about the urban experience at that time and the art was never an equivalent. It was saying something different. Like, when you make a comic, that's slow. Even when it's fast, right. it's slow. And it, you're yeah. alone, and you're not in front of an audience, and it's not a performance, but you're still saying something animistic. You're still saying something that about right. a similar subject. But it's like, I think people can drive themselves nuts trying to make an equivalent between the... might be an interesting experiment to try to do that, but yeah, it might be kind of frustrating because you'd be better off in some ways addressing the medium you're working in. It's yeah. nice to break, you know, push the medium around, you know, hybridize it even, but you still kind of have to pay attention to what it really does, you know? Yeah, I mean, I feel like one of the worst things, the most worst is like punk rock novels. A novel is you sit on a train alone quietly and you've got a quiet moment and you get to read and somehow the book 
speaks to that experience. That's the exact opposite of the experience of being like at a show or something. You see uh, Bruce Kalberg's uh, Sub Hollywood book. I did the cover for it. He was wrote almost everything about his. Uh, he used to suit at him, but it's called Sub Hollywood. He was trying to write a punk rock novel from his point of view. But yeah, I think you're right. I think there's it's already distanced by that form. There's obviously like lots of good books that were influenced by that music and the times. But I think that in terms of just trying to like do it again. Yeah, the punk rock novel. <laughs> they're so different. Comet bus scene is full of like coffee reviews because that's the everybody drinks coffee. Not everyone's you're not at a show 24 seven. It's like addresses a different part of your life that you're, you know, and comics are in the end like a pretty introspective form because you there's the writing and you, inking and you know it takes a long time the way it's related is just the do-it-yourself thing of like okay you can't draw you can't make music you can't write poetry get to work start making it it's going to get better or you're going to fail and go try something else you know but i think jumping in is a very admirable thing to try to do oh i was going to ask you in the beginning you were talking about getting better yeah what does getting better feel like to you in the moment? That my ideas come faster. and Like, I used to sit around and stare. I still do. stare at the wall a lot. But now when I take something on, I have all these strategies and possibilities and things that have become fascinating to me over time. But the notion of getting better, I remember, you know, Savage Pencil, Edwin Pouncey, mm. he was over and he was like, oh, I think I'm going to try to draw it better. I'm like, what the <laughs> fuck is that? But it put the idea in my mind. Well, I could try to draw better. <laughs> well, maybe I'll try. <laughs> how long? How long? How many? How long have you been an artist before that idea occurred to you? <laughs> God, I was probably 50 years old before that occurred. To me, you know, getting better. <laughs> but I think naturally you get more familiar with what you do. If you don't get bored of it or you don't go to sleep as an artist, then you can get into a flow situation or musician, you know, where I'm not a good musician, but my hands know stuff I don't know. And once I'm going with people, my hands will find a way to go with them. And that's really exciting. And that's part of getting better in a way. I played the worst version of Outside Women Blues for 16 years. It's horrible, still horrible, but it might help me somewhere else. But it happened automatically. The final product may not get better, but certain stuff gets faster because you're like, okay, 10 years later, I know how to make orange. I don't have to figure out orange. So you get orange done much quicker and you theoretically have more time to work on some other thing. And you know, it's just about your life doing this stuff. If there's a reward, great. If someone's interested, great. If someone gives you money, fine. You're really spending your lifetime doing it. It should have some kind of worthwhile feeling while you're doing it. Even if it's painful, it still should feel worthwhile. Luckily, I said this over and over, but I'm wired, my dad's wired to make those Cowboy Indian paintings, and I'm wired to get up every day and try to make another thing. And I'm really bad at a lot of other stuff. You know, I'm, I really fail at a lot of adult stuff that's easy for other people. And then I hide in my art psychologically. I'm probably hiding out. What adult things are you bad at? Oh, math, new things, you know, filling out online forms on the computer. Okay. <laughs> you know, if the computer stops, what do I do? I just have to, you know, call someone. Whereas Helene will get be tenacious. She'll be on the phone 12 hours with someone trying to sort out some problem. I would just like throw it out the window. Mm. Like how many years have you been basically only an artist and illustrator as a full-time job? Since 74. Yeah, so that's like a lot of not having to grow up at all. 
<laughs> yeah, right? like, that was my plan. Exactly. My plan was to be part of the new infantilism. Your yeah. plan worked, and now you're dealing with the consequences, right? Still going. <laughs> I remember hearing Mobius, the comic artist, his wife saying, he can't do anything. Right. But I can't drive. drive a car. A lot of people, you know, artists, a lot of comic cartoonists can't drive, but I can try. But, uh, yeah, shirker. <laughs> shirking. It's like, it's like a way of shirking life. Shirking off. How much is comics about, like, talking to people for you? Your work's kind of really humanistic in a way. You don't have, like, a persona, and your work doesn't have a persona, and it doesn't have, like, a mystery. Like, some people, I feel like, have a they, they consciously want to put people in a, in a remove where they're like, what's going on? And you kind of do things that are disorienting, but at the same time, it's through this, like, very... Hi, I'm Gary. I'm going to say something weird now in the comics or, like, in the art. I drew this, and I drew this. There's something, like, really, like, handshakey. Like you're meeting a person. I think that's true. I think it's because I grew up in a little town and I had to find everything at the drugstore. And so I have a, a subtext in my mind of, can I get signals out to kids in the middle of nowhere? You know, And I don't really literally try to do that. I just think if I do what I do, that will happen by now. People like Forrest J. Ackerman, uh, editor of Famous Monsters of Filmland. Yeah. He was one of those uncles, you know. I mean, I don't know if you'd really want to hang out with him. I don't know. I hung out with him once. He was okay. He was like a little kid. He was like, let's crawl under the house. That's where the good stuff is, you know? So we crawled under his house. And he had some, like, skulls down there and some candles. And he thought that was where it was at. Upstairs he had, you know, like the robot from Metropolis, you know, copy and stuff. You know? But he was one of those guys. Or, or even, you know, like the, the most famous one, Ed Roth. Mm. Like uh, your older crazy pal. Were those people like artists see you or are they like a separate category in some sense huh i think they were creative you know i was pretty snobby early on it was kind of like here's my you know i know all this stuff about modern art so when i went to art school art school when i went to the ag school that had an art department i was self-trained so that they really had to deal with me you know they put me with the grad students so i could nerd out faster <laughs> but you didn't go to grad school right no, my grades were bad. You know, I graduated in 74 where there was no money. It was a gas crisis. And, but it was good because I would have gone to Chicago and not L.A. And I went to New York and looked at it. It was scary to me, though I got a lot of positive reaction to my work. People would have hired me in New York in 74. But I went to L.A. in 76. Oh, I wanted to know if there was ever a commercial job that you thought was just like a job and then you did it and you're like, wow, I actually really liked how this came out. This is a cool project that is one of my favorite. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of commercial art jobs that turned out okay that I'm proud of, but there's probably like, I'm critical of most of them. But I mean, are there any ones that you didn't think were very promising when you started and then when you finished them, you were like, well, it was cool. I don't know. So nothing like sticks out? No. Usually it's like something I got excited about and I really tried hard to do it and stayed excited about it. You know, like Frank Zappa covers, you know. I mean, that was fraught because they were unauthorized and I didn't know it at the time. What happened there? I got hired, you know, to do uh, three Frank Zappa covers. Right. But I found out on the, while I was working on the third one that Warner's was just dumping these on the market and trying to get out of their contract with them, I guess. And, you know, because I asked him, I said, why am I not meeting Frank Zappa? This is the third cover, and I know he's a control <laughs> freak and what's going on, you know. But then, you know, Zappa liked him okay. Matt Groening became his friend, you know. Did you guys, did you ever meet Zappa? Never met Zappa, no. I saw him live. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, was the, the 80s, like, censorship 
fight a thing on your radar as an artist that you were thinking about? I guess the only thing I ever worried about was doing a comic strip where I told people to throw bricks through bank windows. And I thought, oh, this probably made a file on me somewhere, you know. Not so much, really. I mean, crazy I, cat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I blame it on I blame it cats. Well, we did this comic, P Dog, which was totally filthy joke comic. But it was underground. That was the thing. After the internet, nothing was underground. We could make a photocop, 50 comics of a photocopy comic and send them around the world, and it could get famous in the underground. Right. But that didn't happen. Well, something like that happens, but it's not the same. But I think that's why people get so angry now on the internet is because the left hand can see what the right hand is doing and vice versa. Can't hide. So you have to not hide. You have to just have a more permissive society or we're in trouble. I'm with you on that. I've been looking for a way to segue this question. I'm, I'm shifting gears. I, I saw you give a talk on YouTube, um, you were out of college, and you talked about reasons for making art, and it might be for girls. <laughs> and then you said it has to be the right kind of girl, but then you went into something else. So what's the right kind of girl? Sorry, I'm coming out of nowhere with this. No, that's a good question. Where were you going with that? It seemed like you knew what you were talking about. <laughs> I don't know what I was talking about. Well, I was talking about, initially, I wanted attention. You know, look at my drawing, and it had to do with liking girls and wanting girls to like me. And right. You know, but the kind of girl I like—that's just you know. I mean, it could, as you could ask, like the girls I've married. You know, they're smart and powerful, and you know, crazy. The trifecta. <laughs> but, uh, but it's kind of fateful. You don't. I don't know. My ideal girl. Gee, I can't. <laughs> I can't go there. Do um. Women that you think of as attractive appear in your work ever? Or is that a subject that wouldn't appear in a Gary Panter painting or drawing? Wait, do the girls I'm trying to attract appear in my work? No, not specific ones, but just like, is that a subject that's in your... Because I feel like there's certain subjects yeah. that are in your work and certain subjects that aren't, and ugliness is so big in your work that I wonder if like the idea of like putting a woman that you would really be interested in in, a, in one of your paintings would actually ever occur to you. Yeah, it happens. Sure it happens. I, when I was drawing the Del Tokyo book, yeah. uh -huh. it leaves off like 45 strips I did after that story finished that I was drawing for a Japanese magazine. And in that story, Jimbo meets this beautiful girl with long brown hair who's like a cave woman who's very powerful and good hunter. And they, they live together until it got boring, because then it just became about wanting to buy her new boots and stuff. <laughs> and then the, my Japanese friend dropped the comic, you know. But he, and he stopped. Maybe it was an excuse, but uh, I, I'm a cop to that. Yes, sure. But I mean, this whole, like, you need to be taken care of thing theme is <laughs> looms large. <laughs> you know, like, want to escape Jesus and be taken care of. Yeah. But also take care of other people. Yeah, you know, I'm weak. I'm a weak person. <laughs> I'm trying not to, you know, like I'm trying to open up. Well, at my age, and you'll hear me say it somewhere on YouTube, I feel like the whole culture's message to me now is die. You're done. You're old. Can't check out. You're finished. You're over. You know, get out of here, you know. And my reaction is, you know, my brain doesn't know how old it is, and I refuse to give in yet. I see my parents went down in the last few years in their 80s. That was that happens. But why give up until it really happens to you, you know? Fighting for health and so on, you know, it's a giant, horrible deal. You know? But so I'm just trying to be healthier. I'm trying to, I, I knew all my life I'll have to someday eat healthier and exercise. This right. year I started. 
at 64, I started, you know, like, okay, I'm going to exercise and eat better. How are you liking it? I like it. I lost weight. I feel better. I, I got some sunshine on me, you know. Right. I can walk four miles now. I can do push-ups again and stuff. Nice. Once you start to see results, it gets real exciting, right? Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> but is, is a healthy Gary Panther the Gary Panther that makes Gary Panther's art? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, like, you can still relate. You're <laughs> like, this is not a problem. I can still make, like, little weird hash marks in, this, in weird places and skinny people with big hands, and I can do it. More, more, more. You just have more energy to be weird. Yeah, exactly. Precisely. And if I want to make some giant painting, I'll be able to wield the broom. Nice. The comic I'm working on now is like a, a version of Milton's Paradise Regained, you know? And so it's one of the, again, like Jimbo and Inferno and Jimbo and Paradise, it's one of those slave labor comics where it takes like, you know, a lot of time to draw. And it's not getting worse. It's getting just as good or better. So that's my goal. Getting better. Getting better all the time. <laughs> <laughs> getting bolder there's almost I wouldn't want to say timeless but there's like a impossibly feral way of drawing that you have that isn't ageable like it just it's like that's comfort it's like it's, like that's just that thing you wouldn't expect it it's like Kirby Kirby never seems old he just seems like Kirby even in the 80s you're like oh it's Kirby I went to visit him in 76, and he had a drawing wow. on his table, and it was like he was drawing it diagonally, like magically appearing diagonally as he went down. <laughs> Just waved his hand back and forth a few times. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, I didn't watch him draw it, but that's how it was developing. He had like a couple of big shapes, commandy or whatever it was, you know. Did he have any reference pictures he was going with? No, and his table was shitty. He had, you know, it seemed like he was probably using a knife to sharpen his pencil with or something. Did you just stand over his shoulder and just watch him draw? No, no, I didn't watch it, but I wish, you know, I would have. Did you guys talk? Yeah, I asked him if he drew Big Barda naked, and he said, no, absolutely not. <laughs> you seem a little upset. <laughs> a little, not so bad. He was, you know, he would let me, he let us nerds come over, you know, and bother him. He was nice, you know. Hmm. He had all those big collages he's where he became more famous for later. They were yeah. Yeah. Very proud of them. Those are amazing, those collages. Yeah, they're good. Good stuff. Okay, so you've met a lot of your, like, art creative heroes. Yeah. Uh, other than people you've listed, anybody else, like, just blow your mind or say that? Or, or the opposite. You were like, oh, my God. or Someone that I met? Interesting, interesting meetings with other creative people that changed things for you. Well, I think one person I met was Joshua White that did the Joshua Light Show in the 60s because I never really got to go to light shows. And uh, He did like the pulsing red, like psychedelic oil spots, yeah. Thousands of people did it. He was one of the most famous guys and he was on the East Coast. And I attracted him with my little tiny light show and we became collaborators and we still work on stuff and we're friends. But otherwise, I mean, I met like became friends with Bill Griffith and Robert Crumb to a lesser degree because, you know, he's so put upon. Spiegelman and, uh, gee, Chris Ware, Dan Klaus, you know, everybody. I, I mean, tried to do one of those light shows once, and I, grew, I destroyed an opaque projector. Wow. <laughs> it was so shitty? Like, I, I Oh, just, you tried to do one. I tried oh. to do one, like, I... You know, but I was just like, it's just oil and colors just dripping all over this projector. It's, it's really messy. It's yeah, completely it's messy. messy. It's still and it's, is. And it's, it's hard. Still messy. 
and then of course it was like I was doing it so wrong. Everybody was like looking right into the light, and they're like, "That light sucks." Like, <laughs> <laughs> wrong way, kids. Turn it's like, around. well, this is harder than it looks. <laughs> <laughs> well, with Josh, it's amazing because he's like not a hippie. He was a theater guy, and he's super youthful guy in his seventies. And he's a super organizer. He was a television director. And so the big version of the light show that we perform with like Lou Reed and Terry Riley and people like that, there's 10 people back there under headsets communicating with specialties, you know. So you have 10 people with a special thing they do, you know, the special weed they smoke to do it. (laughs) (laughs) How did he get on, on the ground floor of that community if he didn't, if he wasn't at all a hippie? Well, I mean, he was young. He took it. He employed all the hippies. I mean, he was like a privileged kid, you know. So, so he, he was like, like a Bill Graham type. Yeah, he was a bit like that. He was kind of an angry youth who didn't mind, you know, bossing people around. And but he was interested. He said he totally dedicated to the art of it. You know, hmm. like a lot of people you meet, whatever their art is, it's the highest art in the world. And I think for Josh White. Light shows the highest art in the world for him. That's a funny thing to think, you know. Like, <laughs> like it's it's great because it's, it's by higher. why they're they're set so cool and people remember them. But it's also like you can imagine, like, well, they think they're going to see Hendrix, but really they want to go see my show, right? Well, a lot of light shows are terrible because the guys take too much drugs and then it turns into like you know the brown oil painting. So know? are you saying like he could not have done those shows if he had actually been a hippie? Well, no, he probably could have done it. He's really, it probably, it helped. It helped. Because other people could be the hippies, yeah. Do you believe in the the Frank Zappa division between hippie and freak as a meaningful thing? Well, I'm a lot more interested in the early hippie visionaries than the spare change peace brother guys, you know. To us, we don't know the difference, you know. Yeah, I think I'm with Frank. Except I think he's lying about a lot of stuff, you know. I mean, uh... He did smoke weed, not all the, you know, not a lot, you know, not like me, but you know, he didn't smoke it once and cry and run away. You know, <laughs> and, uh, you, know you don't write uh, moving to Montana soon without opiates. I got to tell you, he's had to have pain pills to write that song. You know? <laughs> but, uh, so I don't know, uh, but yeah, I, I get the idea between the transition between beatniks and hippies is kind of interesting, and I'm a particular fan of Ed Sanders writing. He's done a lot of writing. The guy from the Fugs, you know. Yeah. yeah. Love the Fugs, and uh, he's written. He was a super books. DIY guy into manifestos and stuff. Still, still is. But his book, A Tales of Beatnik Glory, the fourth revision of it, it's a really brilliant book. And he wrote some really early accounts of like a science fiction account of the uh, Democratic Convention riots, you know, where like the CIA and the yippies are having fucking contests with robots and stuff. And, it's pretty great. It sounds good to me. <laughs> Shards of God. Gary, <laughs> I, f- I feel like we could talk to you all day, but we've taken up like an hour and a half of your time. We should probably start to wrap it up. It's fun talking to you guys. And I look forward to meeting you in the flesh some of these days. It'll be nice. Hope it's one of your painting shows. Yeah, hopefully I'll get back to New York uh, uh, this year. I think I'm supposed to have a show uh, at Fryser, so I may see you there. Great. Oh, when's that going to be? I'm guessing like around the Armory show, but I haven't, I gotta, that's a whole other thing. I gotta talk to those guys. Scheduling is always flexible and fraught. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. We really appreciate it. Thank you. All right.
See you in the future. Thanks for listening to this episode of We Eat Art. Check out our guest, Gary Panter, his latest work. I'm working on a head shop, and I don't know how long it'll take me to build the head shop, but it's an installation idea. Also, I have more of my artwork in my Tumblr, at the pen, or just Google John Mingus. And Zach has... Coming up next podcast, we'll be talking to Diana Cooper. You can support this podcast by liking us on Facebook and Twitter at We Eat Art. You can also rate us on iTunes. Please subscribe or tell a friend. We Eat Art is sponsored by no one yet and is produced by Papin and Mnemonic Recordings. Uh, sorry if you really, really like Picasso. We apologize. Oh, man. <laughs> Our sound producer, engineer, and editor is Justin Asher. I was doing so good, too. Ah.